0: 25 years ago, 35 people were killed in a mass shooting in Port Arthur, Australia. Within two weeks, state and territory governments and the federal government had agreed to a new national firearm regulation standard. I'm Stephen Marsey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Joel Nagan, a professor and head of the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Dr. Nagan has co-authored a perspective article about firearm injury prevention policy in Australia and lessons for the rest of the world. Dr. Negan, can you start by telling us about the Port Arthur shooting and its aftermath? Why did this event generate such a strong national response when previous instances of gun violence had not?
1: It's a really important question to ask, and the Port Arthur massacre really did grab the attention of the Australian population. Now, certainly, it was the largest firearm massacre in the country, but you're right, it was not the only mass violence Incidents in the previous five or ten years. But it really did galvanize the population into action. And the population of Australia at the time in the media really did see this as an important moment. And really, what changed, what moved the dial was the new prime minister at the time, John Howard, who was a center right politician who had only been elected a few weeks earlier, really took this on as a seminal moment in firearm violence prevention in Australia. And there was a lot of advocacy from academics, from community groups, but it really did have that window of opportunity from a political leadership to act after this incident.
0: And what were the primary components of the regulations that were enacted after the shooting?
1: Well, this is a really good example of a public health response to an incident. It had a comprehensive response. It wasn't just about one piece of the puzzle. It really was a focus on new firearm regulation standard that involved implementing, or in some cases, strengthening gun owner licensing, firearm registration, safe storage policies, suicide prevention programs. It was a comprehensive suite of a public health approach, but at its core, and the one that's certainly gotten the most I guess, interest has been the mandatory buyback program for firearms that with this new standard were newly prohibited. And over the year or year and a half after the Port Arthur events, more than 600,000 shotguns, semi-automatic rifles were purchased by the government from Australians and then destroyed.
0: So you say in your perspective article that in addition to that mandatory gun buyback program, Tens of thousands of gun owners voluntarily turned in non-prohibited firearms with no compensation from the government. So what contributed to the strong public support even among gun owners?
1: I think the fact that people realized that these massacres were possible and there was a groundswell in the media, on talk radio, really around the population, around the need for change. And once we got some momentum in Australia around the the buyback, and there were a lot of media pieces at the time showing people turning in their guns, then I think a number of others looked at themselves and said, well, do we really need these firearms? Do we really want them in our homes? And do we want that risk of people using these firearms for purposes for which they were not initially intended?
0: So that's clearly one effect of the regulations. What more globally have been the effect of these regulations on gun violence in Australia?
1: The reason we wrote this perspective piece was to look back at the last 25 years. And the policy changes had a real substantial and positive effect on gun violence in Australia. In the 20 years that followed Port Arthur there were no mass shootings of five or more people in Australia. And in the 20 years before that, there were 11 shootings of that kind. So if you were starting just from a basic starting point, would these regulations reduce the number of mass shootings, which was certainly one of the major intentions, then this was a successful firearm policy. But also looking at annual firearm-related mortalities, so not just mass shootings, but just average annual firearm-related mortality, it Was cut dramatically in, let's say, 17 years before Port Arthur and then the 17 or so years after, from 3.6 deaths per 100,000 people annually to 1.2 per 100,000 people annually. So that's a really dramatic drop. And it's very hard to attribute all of it to the new firearm standard and the buyback program. Um, There were other things happening in the country. But as a real pragmatic policy intervention, Australia has seen A strong decline that has continued to this day in firearm-related mortality across mass shootings, assault, accidents, as well as suicides. And suicides contribute to about 70% of firearm mortality in Australia, as they do plus or minus in the U.S. as well.
0: And as you said earlier, these regulations after Port Arthur were supported by a centre-right prime minister and by all the major political parties in the country. How did the members of the various parties come together in this case? And are there any lessons there for other countries?
1: We have to be cautious on this one, because obviously Australia is different from Colombia or the US or Canada or other countries that have challenges with firearm policy. But I do think the fact that a center-right politician used considerable political capital in advancing this, he was in coalition with the National Party, which is a rural conservative party here in Australia, who were a bit more skeptical, but he was able to bring them along. And the deputy prime minister at the time, who was a national party member, was also strongly supportive of these initiatives. It was supported by all parts of the political spectrum in Australia. So the lessons for that, I think it's an important one. It wasn't seen as a partisan issue. Um, this was at a time when perhaps partisan politics was not as uh, feverish as we see today in 2021. But I do think that was a part of it. And obviously, the scale of the Port Arthur massacre really did shock. And the fact that it was perpetrated by a young man who was not on the police radar also shocked the population into realizing that status quo was not necessarily something we could continue.
0: But finally, you write in your article that the number of registered firearms in Australia is now growing and that there's a well-funded lobbying group that supports politicians who oppose firearm regulation. So how can policymakers in Australia and maybe in other countries as well resist that sort of outside pressure on legislation related to public health and safety?
1: One of the reasons we wrote the article and one of the reasons we're doing some advocacy work and publicity around the 25-year anniversary here in Australia is because there has been some policy complacency over the last few years. Australians do self-congratulate to some degree about their firearm policy over the past 25 years, but it is fragile and it is vulnerable. And one of the outcomes of the firearm regulations that emerged from the Port Arthur massacre was that people needed a reason to own a firearm. And one of the legitimate reasons for owning a firearm was membership in a gun club, a sports shooting club. And so what that actually meant was a very large increase in the membership of gun clubs and shooting clubs. And so those gun clubs have now had a huge increase in membership and therefore in paid dues for membership. And that has served to create this wealthy lobbying group with a national membership of about 200,000 gun owners. And that has now funded politicians and in the state of New South Wales, where I live, there is a political party that is called the Shooters and Fishers Party that is essentially supported by this part of the population. And they have been trying to chip away at some of the firearm regulations at the state level across the country. So there is vulnerability here. And so we do want to make sure that this success of public health practice in Australia is not something that we just sleepwalk into disaster, but rather that we are, as a country, still on top of what we want to do in terms of firearm regulation and how we want to strengthen our programs to continue to reduce the use of firearms in suicide, in domestic violence, and across the population.
0: Thank you, Dr. Nagin.